Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. For our President's Day episode, journalist Alex Prudhomme, author of the new book, Dinner with the President, tells us how presidents since George Washington have used food to advance their policy and diplomatic goals. Throughout history, presidents have organized private, small group dinners with members of Congress and other strategic partners, personal visits to a president's second home, and grand state dinners at the White House to get intelligence, win support for their policies, and build alliances at home and abroad. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Alex Prudhomme, the nation is marking President's Day, and you have a new book that has a different take on presidential history. Tell me about it. It's called Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and a History of Breaking Bread at the White House. And it is a survey of 26 of our 46 presidents, uh, the foods they ate, um, their food policies, uh, the importance of food to the nation in many ways. Um, And it's really, at, at its core, a story uh, about the politics of food and the food of politics uh, viewed through through the lens of the White House, which is sort of a unique place. What inspired this? Well, I grew up in a household of foodies who like to talk politics around the dinner table. And (laughs) uh, so it was a kind of a combination of things. Um, I wrote a a Julia Child's memoir, My Life in France, uh, and some subsequent books about Julia. And in my research, I discovered that Julia had attended the White House on numerous occasions uh, and televised two state dinners there. Um, the first was in 1967 with LBJ, and the second was in 1976 when Gerald Ford hosted Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip for the bicentennial. And so that notion intrigued me. Uh, the idea that she had was to show the people a side of the people's house that they had never seen before. Uh, Her cameras were the first ones ever to go into the White House kitchen and observe the incredible uh, effort it takes to prepare for a state dinner uh, and to pull it off. Um, And then uh, in uh, 2016, I was uh, giving a little talk at the White House for mid-level staffers at the Obama administration about fresh water and why I think it's going to be the defining resource of this century based on my book, The Ripple Effect. And uh, a friend of mine worked at the Obama administration and offered to take me to lunch in the Navy mess, which is a cafeteria on the ground floor, uh, and then give me a quick private tour of the White House, um, which I had never seen up close and personal before. And to my surprise, I was emotionally impacted by that tour. I mean, you know, the, the White House looms large in our minds as a symbol but it is also an actual functioning home, uh, the nerve center of the United States, um, a, a decorative arts museum, and um, uh, probably the most um, influential home in the world. So all these ideas were swirling around in the back of my mind, um, and without really realizing it, um, 
I, the, the idea kind of coalesced that, that uh, my interest in food and politics kind of came together in that moment. Uh, I was in the middle of other things. Two years later, I, I returned. And in 2018, I began to work on this book, uh, which is now coming out. It's called Dinner with the President. Readers, I think, will pretty quickly pick up that you had a lot of fun working on this project. Where are some of the places your research took you? Well, this was such a fun book to do because I'm a history nerd and a foodie, and uh, it was just sort of a combination of all these things. Um, COVID intervened halfway through, but I was able to go to places like Hyde Park, uh, Monticello, Mount Vernon, uh, the Woodrow Wilson House in Washington, uh, and see these places, and, and, and of course the White House, um, and they really bring history alive. You see where these people lived. I mean, seeing uh, FDR's kitchen, which is enormous and well-appointed, uh, compared to Woodrow Wilson's kitchen, which is kind of dark and slightly um, odd-looking to my eye, um, and they had very different ideas about food, and it's sort of physically represented there. Or you go to Monticello and you see the fantastic gardens um, that are still functioning uh, in this wonderful, weird house with sort of like going inside of his brain. Um, and then you realize that this all functioned on the backs of slaves. And so there were many layers. And, and, and the subject of food and politics, um, it's an umbrella uh, that covers many different subjects, everything from the president's personal tastes uh, to local politics, um, you know, global diplomacy, climate change, war, religion, gender, and so on. Um, and so um, the, the hard thing for me was to decide what not to use, because uh, as I began to research this, um, I realized that every president has an interesting food story. And so I had to winnow it down, left a lot on the cutting room floor, um, hope to return to some of it at some point. But, um, you know, really had a ball putting it together. Um, and then halfway through it, COVID hit, and I had to, I wasn't able to go to these places any longer, um, but I had the great fortune of meeting people at the Smithsonian and at the Library of Congress uh, and at some of the presidential libraries who helped me out um, while we were all twiddling our thumbs uh, during the pandemic. So eventually um, the book came out, it was delayed a year by COVID because we literally couldn't produce the book. Um, uh, I'm not the only one who had that problem, um, but here we are, and I'm really happy to get out and talk about it. So you say that it covers many subjects, uh, but did you find that certain themes came uh, through pretty cl clearly through your research? Yes, uh, I, you know, of course, one's own uh, biases come through, but I was fascinated by the role of enslaved people um, in the White House kitchen and in the development of American cuisine as we know it today. Um, I try to highlight the role of first ladies and first families where appropriate. Um, they Turns out that first ladies are um, not only important for the domestic sphere of the White House, but also politically. Um, some women really enjoyed the role, uh, like Dolly Madison uh, or Jackie Kennedy, although she had kind of mixed feelings. Um, or Nancy Reagan. Um, others uh, really didn't like it. Um, Bess Truman hated being first lady uh, and would go back to Missouri every chance she got. Uh, I thought that was interesting. And, and, and the way that um, personal dynamics in, in the, within the first family uh, can affect 
um, a much broader sphere. I won't say it affected the world, but it could affect the administration um, for better and for worse. Um, you know, the role of indigenous people, um, the role of uh, different cuisines coming together to form uh, what we now think of as American cookery. Um, you know, in the early days, um, our cooking was reliant on basically English recipes with from books that were brought over. Um, but those were combined with indigenous indigenous ingredients like venison and corn and wild turkey, um, ultimately tomatoes, um, uh, the spices and herbs from uh, some of the slave uh, cooks, um, the uh, tools and techniques of the French um, in this wonderful amalgam of of, of, of cookery. Um, and, um, you know, one of the people that really began to codify all this uh, was Thomas Jefferson's slave, uh, James uh, Hamilton, I'm sorry, um, James Hemings, uh, who uh, Jefferson brought to Paris when he was an 18 year old boy, uh, trained him in some of Paris's finest kitchens, um, brought him back to the States and uh, used him as a, a political tool, essentially. Uh, Hemings um, cooked for some of the, for George Washington and uh, Hamilton and Adams and leading politicians of the day. And of course, diplomats who came over for dinner. Um, and he had, a, he was a wonderful intuitive cook. Uh, he cooked over open fire, which is uh, difficult. And he had real technique. Um, and his story is kind of fascinating to me. So, you know, there's all of these little strands. Um, I love the way that uh, Jackie Kennedy, for example, based the, her entertaining on that of King Louis XIV of France, who was known as the Sun King, and very intentionally used uh, delicious food and wonderful entertainment as a way of brokering uh, diplomatic deals or business deals or even marriages. Um, it was a way of keeping his friends close and his enemies closer. Um, and Jackie used this probably better than any other first lady um, and was emulated by Nancy Reagan um, to a certain degree of success. And um, it's, a, it's fascinating to me how certain administrations understand the value of food as a political tool and others don't. Uh, and we can talk about that. Sure. In fact, uh, you had to choose among the presidents and pick 26. And we have just an hour with you. So we're going to do a, a brief survey through the centuries of individual presidents. And I do want to start with Thomas Jefferson, because you dub him our founding epicure. And you write, he set a new standard for the quality of food, wine and conversation that has rarely, if ever, been matched. How so? Well, Jefferson was a born epicure. Uh, he was raised uh, at, with a high level of food in Virginia. Um, he was a very inquisitive man. He was uh, sent to France as an ambassador uh, right before the French Revolution. Uh, while in France, he spent time at the royal court and saw how they used food uh, as a political tool. Uh, but he also saw um, the starving communards who eventually uh, revolted um, and began to guillotine the aristocracy there. Um, he spent a lot of time tasting what were to him new foods, 
and, and wines. He became a real enophile wine expert. Um, and he had, as I mentioned, James Hemmings, his cook, um, who learned how to make things like vanilla ice cream or macaroni. Uh, and Jefferson traveled all over Europe, um, ostensibly doing diplomacy, but really uh, collecting recipes and even foodstuffs. He discovered some wonderful Italian rice uh, that he loved. And it was so prized that the Italians uh, threatened to arrest him if he took any home. He disregarded that and filled his pockets with rice. Um, and then he later hired, um, I think, basically some smugglers to bring some rice uh, back over to America, where he planted it at Monticello. So he was a real foodie uh, who appreciated food uh, as a political tool, uh, but also appreciated it um, aesthetically. And his favorite thing to do was to have a dinner party uh, that began early, uh, involved multiple courses, um, scintillating conversation uh, with people that he agreed and disagreed with, um, and lots to drink and, uh, you know, talking late into the night and um, uh, some of his staff got weary of waiting for them to finish up so that they go they could go home at the end of the evening. Um, but he's the kind of guy that I would have loved to uh, hung out with. And um, and he was very um, wise about using food um, to to broker deals. We even have a video that explains some of the inventions he had in his dining room. We're going to watch this. It's just a minute long. In the Monticello dining room, uh, there are a number of contraptions and conveniences that would limit the number of enslaved people that would be required to be present for the dinners. Um, so the food would come in through a side door with revolving shelves so that the enslaved waiters bringing the food from the kitchen underneath the house would not have to be entering the room and exiting the room nonstop. They could put the food on the door outside the room and uh, the enslaved butler, Burl Colbert, could simply turn the door and bring the food into the room. Um, the wine cellar was located directly beneath the dining room, and on either side of the fireplace, Jefferson had built into the, into the mantle uh, wine dumbwaiters so that the wine could be delivered straight up through the sides of the fireplace. Um, so he's using these contraptions to limit the coming and going of enslaved servants, but at the same time, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes by those enslaved servants to make uh, that dinner and the engaging conversation taking place possible. Alex Prudhomme, you write that he brought some of these techniques to the White House, and one of his goals was uh, not to have loose lips reporting on the conversations that were going on in these dining rooms. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he understood that uh, breaking bread together was an opportunity for people to talk outside of the normal political channels. So he would invite people over who disagreed with each other vehemently in public, and they would uh, break bread together in private and work out their differences, or at least agree to disagree and to, to work around it and create some legislation that more or less satisfied everyone. And um, he didn't want the slaves or anyone else listening in and misconstruing what was being said or leaking what was being said uh, because it was so sensitive and private and um these you know so-called backroom deals really were effective um and in fact um in the musical hamilton uh lin-manuel miranda uh has a whole rap 
Uh, the song is called The Room Where It Happened. And that was in reference to a famous dinner um, uh, which took place before Jefferson was president when he brokered a deal between Madison and Hamilton uh, to essentially save the Union, the, this young nation that we had, which was really an idea more than a functioning democracy. George Washington was president, um, and the warring factions were essentially North and South, and um, North being represented by Hamilton, the South by Madison, um, and the issues were how to structure the debt after the revolution and essentially create a financial system um, using taxation, um, and also where to build a federal city, which ultimately became Washington, D.C. And the public dialogue had gotten so poisonous that it was sort of uh, beyond the point of repair. And so Jefferson was concerned that the young nation would fall apart. And so he invited Hamilton and Madison over for dinner, and they broke bread. And at first, they wouldn't talk to each other, but eventually the uh, the wine and the delicious food uh, made by James Hemings um, softened them. And they began to actually talk, frankly, and they hashed out a deal, um, which became known as the dinner table bargain. And that deal, uh, you know, arguably saved the Republic at that point. And um, so uh, this is a way that Jefferson used food in a in a political way. As one last question on, on Jefferson as, as president, because it also illustrates how he used food to gain information. You uh, write this story that starting in 1801, he worked with his daughters, Patsy and Polly, to host three congressional dinners a week and keep kept notes of every legislator who attended. How did he yeah. use that information? Isn't that great? Um, well, again, um, you know, he affected this kind of carefree air uh, but underneath it all, he was very calculating and um, he uh, would invite people from different parties, um, the Federalists on one side and the Democratic Republicans on the other, and would essentially use these dinners to gather intelligence and figure out what they were really after, um, where deals could be made, where deals could not be made, um, to kind of keep a, a finger on the pulse of Washington, which at that time was a small backwater city, um, still very much um, under construction and formation. Um, and he understood that a lot of these congressmen came from far away. They were often uh, alone. Um, they either didn't have families or they couldn't bring their families. They were living in these boarding houses. Um, they were kind of um, from very different backgrounds. And, and so uh, it was kind of a stroke of genius to bring them together over something to eat and drink, make them feel comfortable, make them feel heard, um, and to then um, extract information from them, uh, let them know where he stood on things. Um, and it was, a, it was really effective. I'm going to fast forward 80 plus years to Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, uh, yes. What interested uh, me in this chapter is that he came into office as a meat and potatoes military man. And you write of him that the evolution of the Grant's palates mirrored that of the American public, which became wealthier and more sophisticated after the Civil War. Tell me more about that. Well, Grant was famously a military man. Um, you may recall that he was also an alcoholic, uh, which was the demon that stood on his shoulder his entire life, and he really fought against it. Uh, before the Civil War, um, his alcoholism was noticed by his commanding officers, and he was cashiered. Uh, he ended up selling wood 
uh, firewood on the corner uh, of the street. He had a family and it was a really down in the dumps. And then the Civil War, ironically, resurrected him and he proved himself um, to be what they called unconditional surrender grant on the battlefield uh, and eventually became uh, the head of the U.S. Army and then was uh, elected president. And uh, he, um, as you said, was a meat and potatoes guy to begin with. Uh, he liked to have Navy stewards, uh, I'm sorry, Army stewards uh, prepare, you know, giant slabs of roast beef and mashed potatoes and turkey and more turkey and some cheese and apple pie. Um, his wife wasn't thrilled with that. She aspired to be uh, more like the Washington Swells that she saw going by her window on their way to lovely dinners and lunches. Um, so she redid her wardrobe. She redid the White House. And then she redid the kitchen and brought in um, a series of chefs. But the, the best known was a guy named Valentino Mela, who was uh, uh, born in, uh, in Sicily, was an orphan. Uh, eventually came over to this country, was a wonderful cook. Um, he was known as the professor uh, because not only was he uh, technically a genius, but he was sort of authoritative when he talked about food. Um, and he would produce these, you know, 30-odd course dinners that were, you know, each one more fabulous than the last and paired with wine. Um, and uh, after a few years of this, uh, U.S. Grant, the old military guy, came to really appreciate uh, good food. Uh, when he was in the army, he would have a breakfast of coffee and cucumbers, uh, which doesn't sound very appetizing. Um, but eventually got into having kippered herring and bacon and eggs and lots of coffee. And uh, you can see where this is going, which is that um, ultimately he uh, embraced uh, uh, great cuisine and um, in fact, hosted the first ever state dinner for a foreign dignitary. Uh, and that was uh, King Kalakaua of the Sandwich Islands, which we now call Hawaii. And um, this is important for many reasons, but uh, again, with back to the, the politics of food and the food of politics, um, the reason that King Kalakaua was in Washington was that he was trying to lower American tariffs on Hawaiian sugar um, and they did work out a deal for that. Um, and sugar became Hawaii's biggest export for many years, 100 years. Um, uh, but it also ultimately let uh, the white sugar plantation owners take over and um, the uh, basically the capture of Hawaii as, a, as an American state um, many years later. But it was um, the first time that a state dinner had been hosted for a foreign dignitary, and it was a big deal. Uh, Mela created this uh, amazing menu, which no longer survives, but we can infer that it was fabulous and um, had many courses. Um, and that got a lot of attention in the press. And it was a, a moment uh, when America was booming. Um, you know, there, there were uh, gold and timber coming from the West Coast, uh, salmon, uh, um, railroads were being built, uh, factories were being built. It was kind of the, it was the mad rush uh, uh, financially and politically. And U.S. Grant um, got himself in some trouble. Some of his uh, people in his administration were corrupt. Um, he was a sort of very trusting man, um, uh, probably uh, just in intuitively, but also uh, from his military career. Um, other people took advantage of him. 
um, and he um, um, used these dinners um, a, a little bit like Jefferson to bring people together, broker deals. But he didn't like getting all dressed up and being fancy. He liked kind of keeping things simple. And one of my favorite anecdotes is that he um, began to shoot bread balls at his children uh, at the dinner table, and they thought that was hilarious. And he would sometimes forget where he was, and he shot a bread ball at the British ambassador's wife once, hit her in the head, and <laughs> I think she was a little startled by that. But um, yeah, terrific, colorful character. Moving into the 20th century and someone who uh, liked being formal in a way that Grant did not, Herbert Hoover. Here's an interesting anecdote you write, is that he dressed in formal wear and ate a seven-course meal even when dining alone. Yeah. Uh, and he was also, he would rush through his meals. He, he, you know, he had these wonderful dinners, but he would rush through them. He became known to the world because of his work basically as uh, America's food czar and relief after the First World War. And tell me about his philosophy about food when he came into office. Well, he understood that food was a political tool um, and um, rather intentionally used it to break the back of, of the rise of uh, Bolshevism uh, in Europe. And, you know, the Russians, uh, millions of Russians were starving and he helped uh, supply them with food. Uh, but he really made his mark during the First World War. After the Germans had invaded uh, Belgium and France, there were they would steal uh, the local food and um, uh, food riots would erupt. People were starving. And so Hoover um, uh, and Wilson, um, who was president at the time, um, began to ship food and, and materiel across the Atlantic. And uh, this was one of the things that led us into the war. Um, and it was very, very effective. Um, there were posters out that said, food will win the war. Um, and uh, there's a whole fascinating history about that, about sort of the propaganda around food and how that could be used to um, political ends. And um, that was some of the stuff that I had to cut that I really personally enjoyed. But if anybody's interested, there's plenty out there of research to do. And, um, uh, you know, ultimately, um, it, it led to global food programs that still exist today, where we are helping. We are the uh, preeminent uh, food donor around the world. Even now, people don't really realize this. Uh, but food um, is essential for life, obviously. We all need to eat. And um, it can be used for good and for ill. Um, someone like Churchill or even Hitler or Stalin uh, would use food as a weapon. Um, if you can uh, capture your enemy's food and, and use it to feed your own people, you are also denying it from your enemy. Um, and Churchill used to say that the stomach governs the world. Uh, and he used that in a very um, Manichaean, harsh way, uh, even though he himself was a great gourmet. Reminiscent of Jefferson, uh, before the stock market crash changed everything, you uh, say that he hired three full-time secretaries to build interesting guest lists for meals at the White House and insisted on serving the best foods. So uh, insistent on this that the Hoovers only dined alone once a year on their anniversaries. How did he use these meals? Again, much like Jefferson, that um, he would uh, bring people together uh, pick their brains, let them know where he stood on issues, 
And, um, you know, the table is a place where people can let their guard down uh, and they can speak off the record and they can be frank. And he valued that. Uh, before he became president, he was a very successful global mining executive. He'd lived all over the world and had all sorts of adventures. Um, he understood the value of breaking bread in a way that others didn't. Um, but, you know, ironically, uh, he had to contend with depression um, when people were starving. And um, in the beginning of that, he had a bit of a tin ear. He didn't realize that uh, his fabulous meals at the White House weren't playing well politically while people were starving on the streets and uh, people building Hoovervilles, so-called. Um, and uh, it became um, an ironic um, uh, appetite that he had that uh, although he enjoyed good food, it ultimately worked against him and and people begin to throw rotten tomatoes and cauliflower at him. Um, and uh, it was a sort of a sad ending to his administration. Franklin Roosevelt is the person that you dubbed the second epicure in the White House. But when you read the, his chapters, you see that there was a big tug of war going on between him and Eleanor Roosevelt about White House food. What was that all about? Well, this is where um, the, the side of the White House that people aren't always aware of comes to play, which is the domestic side. Uh, the relationship between Eleanor and FDR was fraught. Um, they had been brought up in uh, wealthy milieu. They were actually distant cousins, um, and they were both cousins with Teddy Roosevelt. Um, they were both brought up on delicious food with cooks in the house and servants. Um, but they had a very contrasting style. Uh, FDR was a real gourmet. And a gourmet is somebody who loves delicious food. Um, and a gourmand uh, is somebody who eats to excess. So Teddy Roosevelt was a gourmand, but FDR was a gourmet. Uh, Eleanor uh, treated food as fuel. Uh, her children would complain that she would just eat toast uh, and a thin soup and didn't really notice what she was eating. Um, FDR loved exotic foods, uh, you know, whether it was uh, bison steaks or uh, special fish flown in just for him uh, from all over the place. Uh, and so that was a sort of um, guarantee to cause some marital tension. <laughs> uh, they had such different views of food. Um, Eleanor began uh, to embrace feminism and uh, a sort of domestic politics while FDR was contending with the Nazis rise in, in Europe. And um, so she began to use the White House as a bully pulpit, pulpit uh, to promote um, healthy but economical eating. Um, and in doing so, she uh, hired a woman named um, Mrs. Henrietta, Henrietta Nesbitt. Uh, who she had met in Hyde Park uh, over bread. Henrietta Nesbitt was a wonderful baker and uh, began to supply FDR's political campaign with baked goods. Um, and when they went to the White House, the Roosevelts hired the Nesbitts to come and work for them. The problem was that Henrietta Nesbitt um, was, uh, had no idea about food, really, and no idea about supplying the White House, which was a very um, active place with lots of people under a bright spotlight. Uh, she didn't do the cooking. She was hired as the housekeeper, uh, but she was in charge of the kitchen and the procurement of food. Um, when rationing came on, she um, 
began to use um, leftovers and serve uh, just horrible dishes like spaghetti with boiled carrots on top um, or a so-called salad made of jello with marshmallows in it or crushed candy canes. Um, and so for FDR, this was kind of a torture. Um, she would also serve things like liver and beans five or six days in a row um, or oatmeal, you know, two weeks in a row for breakfast every day. And he rebelled and would yell and scream, um, but he never fired her, which I thought was curious. Um, he was the president of the United States and he couldn't control his own diet. So I looked into this and it turns out uh, that Eleanor um, was protecting Mrs. Nesbitt. Um, I think in part because um, when FDR was secretary of the Navy, Eleanor discovered he was having an affair um, with her former social secretary, Lucy Mercer, uh, which she saw as a real betrayal and was deeply wounded by this. Uh, it turned out that FDR most likely had other affairs. Um, and so some historians have concluded that uh, Eleanor used Mrs. Nesbitt as a weapon of domestic revenge, uh, forcing FDR to eat horrible food <laughs> to pay penance for his um, his peccadilloes. Um, and uh, in fact, Ernest Hemingway uh, and his wife, Martha Gellhorn, visited the White House. And Hemingway has a hilarious description of what he called the worst meal he'd ever eaten. Um, you know, a, a limp bit of squab and some old salad and a and a terrible cake that some um, unskilled amateur had made. And he said that um, that Gellhorn would go back to the White House, but he would never go back again. We have about 25 minutes left in our conversation. We're learning about presidential food and the intersection of politics and, and presidential uh, eating. And uh, before we leave Roosevelt, I just wanted to get one, not domestic, but uh, d diplomacy story in. And this is uh, another clip that we have from Kevin Oldenburg, who is a site ranger at uh, Top Cottage. And this is uh, the story of the hot dog picnic. Um, some of the guests included Madame Chiang Kai-shek of China, King George II of Greece, Crown Princess Marta of Norway, uh, Queen Wilhelmina and Princess Juliana of the Netherlands, Mackenzie King, uh, Prime Minister of Canada, King George the VI, uh, and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mum from Great Britain. Uh, Winston Churchill was on this porch four different times. Probably the one most people are familiar with is the infamous hot dog picnic, um, the weekend that the King and Queen of England arrived here uh, in Hyde Park. The visit was a very historic visit, as it was the first time that a seated British monarch had been uh, to the United States. And that visit was capped off with a picnic uh, on the porch here at Top Cottage. Now we always hear about the hot dogs that were served, but the menu was, was much more vast than that. They had Virginia ham, smoked turkey, hot sausages, uh, hot dogs, mixed green salad, uh, strawberry shortcake for dessert. Um, but it was the hot dogs that really stole the show and they were swift premium hot dogs. And I don't believe the queen had ever seen a hot dog before. Alex Prudhomme, anything else on that story? Well, he forgot to mention the beer too, uh, hot dogs and beer. And, um, you know, the New York Times was so impressed. They had a big headline saying, King George eats hot dogs and drinks beer and asks for seconds. Uh, <laughs> and this again, there was a political motive here. Uh, this was before the US entered the Second World War. Um, FDR strongly uh, feared 
Hitler and wanted to um, join the Allies against Germany. But uh, the U.S. was in an isolationist mood at that point. Uh, many Americans were still annoyed with Great Britain for not repaying their first World War debts. Um, but uh, he uh, realized that the king and queen uh, were a unique couple and that he could, if he could humanize them um, and make them appealing to the American public, it might help to sway the public mood. And so this was a kind of a coup de théâtre, as the French say. It's a, a theatrical moment that he orchestrated. Uh, much like Jefferson, FDR was a, um, a gastronome who understood how to use food in a very shrewd political way. Um, and he knew that uh, giving the king and queen hot dogs and beer uh, at a quote-unquote simple picnic um, would uh, cause a sensation and, and create headlines. And, and sure enough, it did. Uh, and um, at the same time, behind the scenes, um, he and King George conferred, and he quietly told the king uh, that uh, America has Britain's back and would start to send uh, foods uh, across the Atlantic in convoys and would sink any U-boats that attempted to attack them um, and let the chips fall where they may, uh, which was quite a bold move at that point. Um, and it didn't come a, a moment too soon uh, because uh, shortly after that, the Germans blitzkrieged into Poland and the Second World War was off uh, and running. And uh, by that point, um, he had helped to convince the American public that uh, indeed we should support, support the allies in Europe. And um, uh, that picnic became known as the picnic that won the war. Um, and I love that story. So FDR used Top Cottage as his place to uh, bring people into the fold. Dwight Eisenhower had the farm in Gettysburg where he did much the same thing. And then there's LBJ and his ranch in, in West Texas. Visited it 74 times in the five years that he was in office. And you say he was a practitioner of barbecue diplomacy. How did That's it right. work? <laughs> well, he had, a, he had a formula down, um, uh, which is quite impressive that you know, there's this great myth of the American cowboy in the West, and he used that very shrewdly. He would get people out of Washington or out of their embassies, and he would fly them out to his ranch in Texas, uh, in the Texas Panhandle. And uh, the formula worked like this. You would show up at the ranch, and he would take you on a leisurely horseback ride uh, around the ranch and show you this and that. And then he'd, he'd give you a beer uh, to, to quench your thirst, uh, then the, you'd have a dinner of uh, barbecued ribs or perhaps some pedernales chili, uh, which was created by his black cook, Zephyr Wright. Uh, it was a wonderful dish. Um, and, uh, you know, a big thick piece of cake, some cornbread, um, more beer, maybe a little bourbon um, or whiskey of some kind. Uh, and then he'd move in. He'd say, now, I'd like you to do me a favor. Uh, and whether that was a a congressman or Conrad Adenauer of Germany or whoever was visiting, uh, this was a very effective tool because few people could resist his charm, uh, the ranch and the food and drink. But at the same time, does he not also hold the record for the most state dinners, 55? Yeah. So yeah. What, does that, what does that say? He was also using the White House as, as a tool. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, he understood it. Um, uh, he was a man who was very observant 
he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He kind of came from the wrong side of the tracks. He had grown up, um, you know, near starvation. His family occasionally ran out of food and they would have to uh, get borrow meals essentially from neighbors or ask for handouts. And so food for him was a loaded subject. Um, and once he was in a position to um, create food legislation uh, programs uh, to help the poor get food, um, they were very personal uh, efforts by him. Um, uh, again, I mentioned Zephyr Wright, his, his personal cook. Um, she helped to persuade him to write the Civil Rights Act and after he signed it, uh, he gave her the pen. Um, so food for him was um, a potent um, a metaphor and message, and he understood its power in a very visceral way that many presidents don't. One point we have not gotten on the table is how are, is all this paid for, this entertaining by presidents? Well, that's a good question, and, and uh, it's still confusing today. Um, the tradition is that uh, official dinners, state dinners in particular, which can be very expensive, you know, sometimes millions of dollars uh, and take months and months of planning, um, those are paid for by the U.S. government. Um, however, the president and the first family are um, essentially employees of the government and they have to pay their own way. Uh, they have to buy their own food, their own clothes, their own toiletries, whatever. Um, and so, this has been a sticking point for some presidents um, who don't come from means, uh, people like Harry Truman, for example, who was a, a haberdasher um, in Missouri and did not have great uh, uh, fortune behind him. Um, but if you were someone like JFK, uh, he had his father's vast fortune to rely on. Um, or if you were someone like Jefferson, who had a, a slave plantation, uh, uh, you had plenty of money to entertain in a style, um, uh, in a high style. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a point of contention. So let's uh, fast forward to the 1980s and Ronald Reagan, a statistic in your book, 75,761 people dined at the White House during the first Reagan term. What was he using all those meals for? Well, Nancy Reagan um, modeled her entertaining on Jackie Kennedy. She, she claimed she didn't, but very clearly she did. Um, and was actually quite effective in reaching across the aisle and brokering deals. Um, you may remember that uh, the Reagan years were politically tense, but behind the scenes, uh, Nancy um, uh, managed to orchestrate various dinners um, with the so-called opposition um, Democrats uh, who uh, held sway in Washington at the time, uh, even going into so-called enemy territory, um, going into the Graham household, who the people who ran the Washington Post, or into private clubs. Um, but Nancy also understood the value of pomp and circumstance. And so one of the first uh, big events that they did at the Reagan White House was a celebration of Reagan's birthday. And that was a black tie affair. Uh, very fancy. Um, but this was considered a private party um, that uh, their wealthy friends helped to pay for. Um, and uh, there's less press scrutiny. It's all kind of off the record. And um, the private parties tend to be a lot more fun, a little looser. Um, they aren't constricted by protocol. Uh, it's basically uh, their personal friends, their donors, their political allies coming over. Um, 
And, um, you know, Reagan um, used food, interestingly, um, to connect with his base. Uh, he's famous for his jelly beans. Uh, the jelly beans are an interesting story because they appear to be just kind of a sweet, trivial candy. But actually, um, uh, there's a, the, the backstory is that he started eating jelly beans because he was weaning himself off of tobacco. He was a pipe smoker. Uh, and then he used jelly beans to judge people's character. Um, if someone came into his office and began to pick out uh, certain colored jeans and not uh, beans and not eat them, um, he took note of that. It meant something about that person to him. Um, and it was also a way of using food to relate to his voters. He would say, well, you know, I like this simple, sweet candy. You like it. Uh, therefore, vote for me. In fact, he didn't actually even have to say that. He just used the jelly beans as a, a metaphor uh, for his good-natured, uh, folksy demeanor. Uh, he would hold up a big jar of, of jelly beans and show it to the cameras and smile. And, and um, it, it did backfire at one point when um, there was sort of a, a coming together of events where he was eating jelly beans, which are a sugary candy. Um, he, uh, his administration declared uh, infamously uh, ketchup to be a vegetable. Um, and at the same moment, Nancy Reagan had just acquired a very expensive, large, and rather beautiful set of new White House china, um, which, by the way, was paid for by uh, private funds, by donors. Uh, but what got lost in the, um, the hoo-ha that happened was that um, Reagan cut back uh, school lunch expenditures at the very same time that Nancy was buying china um, and that he was calling ketchup a vegetable, and it, it blew up in his face. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's the downside. Uh, you know, if you're a president, every bite you take matters. And uh, that was an example where um, a seemingly um, simple situation spun out of control. He uh, was just shy of, of LBJ's 55 state dinners. Two of them uh, you write about. One was, well, actually a few of them, but one became emblematic of the 1980s, Charles and Diana arriving at the White House. But his most significant was his dinner, state dinner with Mikhail Gorbachev. Why? Well, this was essentially uh, the, the curtains being drawn over the Cold War. Uh, Gorbachev um, had realized that the ongoing Cold War was destroying Russia and Europe and um, Reagan uh, with Maggie Thatcher um, was forcing his hand. And so after years of negotiations and, and dinners in Europe and, and all over the place, um, the uh, Gorbachevs came to Washington and were hosted uh, by the Reagans at a wonderful state dinner. Um, it was uh, it was a, it was a it was very emotional moment, and um, uh, people in the audience were crying because uh, the uh, the moment had was a historically significant dinner, and and um, um, but it, you you mentioned the 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 Lady Diana uh, Prince Charles visit that was a bit of uh, uh, theatrics by uh, orchestrated by Nancy Reagan. Um, a la Jackie Kennedy, where um, this was uh, ostensibly a surprise that um, um, uh, Ronald Reagan was dancing with Lady Di, Nancy was dancing uh, with Prince Charles, uh, and then in a signal by, from Nancy, out of the shadows stepped John Travolta, this sinuous, 
dancer from Saturday Night Fever uh, who Lady Di had wanted to meet. And they had a very uh, sexy dance together. And um, it was uh, one of those uh, images that defined the Reagan White House. It was a fabulous moment of food, entertaining, a combination of celebrity and royals. Um, uh, you know, to a certain extent, <laughs> the nation's mind was being blown seeing this. And it was uh, though the images of that night went around the world and still to this day are, are defining uh, of that era. So um, uh, even though um, uh, Reagan was not a particularly foodie person, Nancy understood the value of food and entertaining and, 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 and used it quite effectively. Alex Putin, we have 10 minutes left, and I'm going to do a quick romp through the 21st century's presidents. Uh, you write, of, so far, the 20th century has been a confusing time in the food of politics and the politics of food. So let me go through the four 21st century presidents real quickly, and I have one line from each uh, for, for you to comment on. Sure. George W. Bush, how 9-11 changed presidential food really forever. What were the changes after 9-11? Well, in personal terms, um, uh, the president could no longer accept food gifts from all across the country, which was a popular thing because uh, they were. we became so concerned about security. Uh, that really changed things. Um, and the, the, the clampdown also returned us to simpler, more homey food, comfort food because we were in a, in a state of trauma uh, and it sort of realigned priorities. Barack Obama, the most globally informed palate since Herbert Hoover. And you also write during his administration, food became part of a larger culture war. Well, Obama, when he was campaigning, was criticized for being an elitist because he liked to eat arugula salad. Um, he was a real foodie. Um, and Michelle Obama was um, someone um, more focused on health. Uh, her Let's Move campaign um, uh, was very popular and helped uh, people start thinking about obesity and uh, diabetes, uh, which can lead to all sorts of horrible diseases. Um, and uh, they used food in, in quite a shrewd way. The, the problem was that Barack Obama uh, tried to emulate Teddy Roosevelt and, and bust up some of the big food uh, trusts uh, and failed. Uh, the, the lobbyists and um, the food companies um, made sure that that didn't work out. And ultimately, Michelle Obama became more effective uh, way by planting her White House garden, um, which I think is a terrific story, partly because it seemed radical at the time to rip up this beautiful green lawn at the White House and plant a vegetable garden. But it was also very retro. Um, the early years of the White House presidents often had uh, gardens there, and, or chickens running around, or even a, a few of them had uh, cows, uh, some of whom lived in the White House um, uh, for their milk. Um, and so it was a, a return to tradition. Um, it was not only a message about healthy eating, um, it was also a message about the politics of food. And, and Michelle understood that and was a little tentative about uh, jumping into that battle, but uh, ultimately did. Um, and that um, proved more effective in, in getting the message out than, than uh, the president's um, legislation. Of Donald Trump, you write, he understood the politics of the dinner table better than any other president since the Kennedys. Yeah, people uh, can't believe it when I say that, but it's true. Uh, he used food in a very shrewd way. Uh, I'm not sure how well thought out it was, he liked to say that he operated from his gut, 
literally and, and metaphorically. And um, so when he would tweet pictures of his taco bowl or his pizza hut or his McBurgers, um, this uh, directly appealed to his base. Um, there's, I talked to some academics about this. The, the, when you see someone uh, wearing a similar shirt to you, you think, oh, that's a nice shirt, but it doesn't really register too much. But if you see somebody eating the same kind of food that you like, uh, it, 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 it triggers something in our primal brain. Uh, it almost goes back to our prehistory where food was a matter of life and death on a daily basis. And so if you saw somebody eating the same kind of food you did, that essentially meant you were of the same tribe. Um, and it's true today. And it's not a conscious thought we have. It's a, it's a, it's an emotional impulse. So um, a, much like Reagan and his jelly beans, uh, Trump was saying, you like the same kind of food that I do, therefore vote for me. Uh, again, he didn't have to say that. It was just the message of, uh, of those images. And uh, like Reagan, uh, when he um, um, hosted the Clemson football team uh, for a so-called burger banquet uh, in the state dining room uh, under the portrait of Abe Lincoln at the White House, um, the images of that dinner uh, went around the world instantly and became defining ones. Um, and people, uh, traditionalists on both sides of the aisle were outraged by this. Uh, and that was the point. Uh, he made a uh, statement uh, visually um, about uh, his values uh, and his voters. And uh, it was reminiscent of Andrew Jackson um, and other uh, uh, populists who um, very intentionally used symbols like that to appeal to his voters. And it was extremely effective. Joe Biden came into office still with the COVID restrictions. He's had one state dinner. Any observations about Joe Biden's relationship with food? Well, Joe is a, a spaghetti and ice cream eating guy. Uh, he's not a great sophisticate on food, uh, but his wife, Jill, is a very accomplished cook. She grew up uh, with Italian grandparents who like to make homemade pastas and braccioli and meatballs and homemade bread. And uh, she took up the mantle of cookery in their household. Um, and uh, actually Kamala Harris is a very accomplished cook and in fact has some um, cooking videos you can see online where she's brining a turkey or she's uh, schooling uh, Senator Warner on making a tuna melt uh, or she's making a masala dosa with Mindy Kaling. Um, and she, uh, her interest in food is very genuine too. And, and so uh, it's interesting. This again, it's the role of the first lady um, where there's a, a, bl a blending of the personal and the political uh, when it comes to food. Well, on that note, <clears throat> excuse me, you uh, close with some observations about the role of the president and the first family as eaters in chief. Uh, what are your thoughts about that and what uh, opportunities and responsibilities the role comes with? Well, the public really pays attention to what the president and first family eat. Um, there are studies done on this. And so when Trump was talking about his burgers, the consumption of fast food, particularly amongst Republicans, went up. Um, and it sort of gives people license to eat what the president eats. The president is reflecting the nation's taste, but he's also got his own taste. Um, looking back, there are foods like possum or squirrel stew or turtle soup that past presidents have eaten that were very trendy in their day that we considered weird or even disgusting now. Um, but when they would eat those things, the presidents inspired the public. Um, and so my uh, feeling is that the president ought to 
acknowledge this uh, more openly and and promote uh, the best of American food, the best of American cooking ingredients, techniques. Um, I think we ought to showcase the White House kitchen and cooks. Um, the kitchen, the executive kitchen is in, on the ground floor. It's kind of a very small space uh, hidden away. Uh, I think we ought to physically and metaphorically elevate the kitchen, bring it upstairs, put it in the sunlight, allow the public to have a peek at it from a safe distance uh, and uh, see these wonderful meals being made there uh, by these very accomplished cooks um, and uh, that are feeding uh, the president and first family on a daily basis, but also um, um, uh, congressmen and dignitaries from abroad and um, really elevate the role of the White House kitchen and the White House cooks. We have two minutes left. Do you want to tell the story of your state dinner that you hosted? Well, uh, this was a really fun thing. I managed to get in right before COVID started, uh, luckily enough. Um, I had been trying to get invited to a state dinner while working on this book. Uh, the Trump administration only held two of them um, and didn't see fit to invite me um, because I wanted to do what Julia Child had done uh, way back, which was to cover a state dinner, show the American public uh, a side of the White House that they don't normally see. I was denied that opportunity. And so I got creative and I decided to create my own state dinner. Um, through hook and by crook, I managed to convince a former White House cook, John Muller, uh, to cook a wonderful dinner. Each of the courses was based on a real recipe used at the White House for a state dinner um, and has a story behind it. Um, we started with mushroom soup, uh, moved on to a delicious salmon, uh, a salad uh, with uh, Amish cheese, and finished with a chocolate bomb that was uh, fabulous. Um, and I invited 10 people who had either worked at the White House or covered it for the Washington Post or uh, were food historians. Uh, and we had a lively conversation about what it's like to be at a state dinner and why it's still important and still relevant, even in this era of the internet. Um, and how human connection over food uh, is this um, seemingly hardwired into us humans. We just seem to need to eat together, whether we like each other or not. Um, and it's a great way of uh, brokering dialogue um, and moving things forward. Alex Prudhomme's book also has just a few historic presidential recipes included for your readers. The book is titled Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and a History of Breaking Bread at the White House. Thanks so much for spending an hour with us. My pleasure, thanks so much. And let's all break bread together. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 